My daughter loves movies, loves movies. She has a fairly broad selection, honestly, um, you know, probably in the hundreds. But she'll get one on her iPad and then she's over and over and over. It's not uncommon that she'll do the same movie five, six times in in a day. So periodically she'll nestle up next to me and it's like, dad, let's watch a movie. And so, you know, it's like, I've seen Shrek 75 times and, um, you know, on going there, there's one, I hadn't really heard of it. Didn't know much about it, but I really liked it. It's called miracles from heaven. And it's a story of a young gal who um, had an incurable disease. It was terrible. And when it was, it was leading towards her death. And um, mom took her back to hospitals and specialists in, in Boston, I think it was. And uh, they couldn't figure it out. They did all the work in the world. They had no, no explanation as to what was going on. One day she was out playing on their property and she was up in this tree. It's a kind of a hollowed out tree and she was there playing around and she fell down in this tree about 20 feet and smacked her head unconscious. Um, The strange thing is, is that fall cured her. When she woke up, um, they went through some of the process and the things that she was feeling prior. She was like healed, unexplainable. But what makes the story, it's a miracle that happened, but what makes the story so fascinating to me is that she had in this moment of kind of uh, her comatose state, she had these encounters with God in heaven. And, and when she came back, she had certain facts that she had no way of knowing apart from this supernatural event in her life. It's a, it's a fun story. People have more than a few times asked me, do you believe this is going to happen? Well, I said, well, of course I do. Now, I will tell you, I have never met anyone that had a near-death experience and went to hell. Have you? Because uh, I'm pretty convinced that if they had a near-death experience and went to hell, they'd come back and say, Jesus, I love you. I'm with you. I'm not going down there. But this little girl had these encounters. And the way it changed her life and her family's life is in many ways, I think, reflection in the scriptures of another person. There's a, a playwright. His name is Eugene O'Neill. And he wrote uh, a play. It was called Lazarus is Laughing. It's a fun little fanciful play. And he just depicts all of these different events in Lazarus's life after he died and rose again. Now, if you don't know Lazarus, he was a good friend of Jesus. He had two sisters, Mary, Martha. And um, Jesus, I think, kind of purposely uh, waited. Lazarus was sick. They were calling for him, come, you know. And Jesus kind of hung out and said, no, I want to make sure he gets kind of good and smelly before I show up. Came and he called Lazarus out and healed him. Well, O'Neill kind of imagines what would it be like for Lazarus after the resurrection. He tells this story of a party that happened at Bethany. And, and there's a gentleman there and, and here's his 
depiction of Lazarus. He goes, the whole look on his face has changed. He's like a stranger from a far land. There's no longer any sorrow in his eyes. It's, it's almost like, well, they've, the grave seems to have swallowed up his sorrow. Another recalled as he was talking about Lazarus and kind of his uh, depicting him and, and seeing him. And another gentleman makes this statement. He goes, and then Lazarus knelt. They were at this party and he kissed Jesus. And both of them smiled and Jesus blessed him and called him my brother and went away. And Lazarus, looking after him, began to laugh softly like a man in love with God. Oh, such a laugh I'd never heard. It made my ears drunk. It was like wine. And though I was half dead with fright, I found myself laughing too. Have you ever thought about that? In the movie of this young gal... Her life was different and she made a significant impact on her family. But have you ever just kind of allowed your mind to fancifully run down the the road? It's like, what was Lazarus like after his resurrection? I, I wonder if he ever had any bouts of anxiety anymore. In fact, I wonder, you know, I mean, Martha was his sister and, and she was a really servant. She was an amazing servant. But to be quite honest with you, probably a little annoying. She's the kind of person when you went in the house, she was always barking orders and telling you what to do. And the idea, if you ever sat down to relax, she'd make you feel guilty. But I wonder if Lazarus, after the resurrection, ever got annoyed with his sister. I wonder if he just saw her and said, oh, sweet girl, when you get to heaven, you're going to find out this is not worth it all. I wonder maybe if Lazarus ever went to a funeral, if he walked away laughing just a little bit. Oh, if you knew what I knew, you'd be jealous of this guy. You'd be thinking, oh, death is a gift. Because when you get to the other side, you're going to be amazed. And you're never going to want to come back. You see, what Lazarus experienced, what this little girl experienced, is this principle, and I think it's true. Absolutely, I know it's true. When you can picture yourself in heaven, when you've spent a day in heaven, it'll change the way you live on earth. If if we could do that, I think it would be kind of cool. I'm not so sure any of us would vote to go back. I think if we spent a day in heaven, we'd say, Lord, you just take care of the earth. I'm staying here. But if you could just for a moment imagine being in heaven. Because see, that's what Paul does in this text. He knows that if I can help you see yourself in heaven, you'll live differently on this earth. If I can help you just embrace, just for a second, all the things that will happen, it won't just change heaven. It will change you now. And that's why he, he deals with three questions here. Uh, and they're, they're questions that are a prelude to dealing with the issue of how you and I live on this earth. See, in verse 15, chapter 15, he's gone through the resurrection, the validity of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, the support for the resurrection. And then he goes to after the resurrection, the promise of heaven. But that's really not where he's landing. That's not his point. His point is at the very end, 
therefore, verse 58, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that when you get to heaven, the dividends are going to be beyond imagination. See, what Paul wants you to imagine is what is it like for you to be in heaven? And if you can picture that, it'll change the way you live on earth. So there's three questions that he wrestles with. Number one is how do we get there? How do we get to heaven? Number two, what is it like when I get there? What will happen to me? How will I be different? And number three is when do I get to go? The first one, Paul goes and borrows from some agriculturalist farmers because they're asking the question. It starts in verse 35, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body will they come? How foolish. In other words, Paul's kind of comes back to them and said, you guys should know. This is simple. Every farmer knows this one. Now, they may be smarter than you, but the reality is every farmer knows that the only way you get life is through death. The only way you get to heaven is through death. Why? Because that's the nature of our life. The only way he goes on and he, and he makes this statement. He says, when you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but rather just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. And it's true of you. Why? Well, if you go back to Genesis, here's the reason. Because in Genesis, Paul or God is talking to Adam and he says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now we know in our day what that means. It means that the earth is going to die. I was saying last week, I'm not here to make a political statement or argue about the temperature of the earth. Uh, you can, that's for smarter people than I am. I, I won't debate the issue of is the worth earth warming? Is, is there a thaw? I, I won't debate that. You can debate that. What I won't debate because it's a settled issue is the earth is dying. We know that. Why? Because the scriptures tell us. In Romans 8, chapter 23, it says the earth is groaning. It is experiencing, moaning the pains of death. Why? Because sin entered into it. And the result of that, God says, is it's going to die. You're going to die, Adam. Eve is going to die. And the earth is going to die. And 2 Corinthians 5, 1 says the same thing. You see, the result of what sin is death. That's why Jesus had to die on a cross. If Christ didn't die on the cross, the father would have been a liar. They would have discovered heaven through the means of some other gift. But Christ can't come and just say, hey, father, let's just wipe their sins out. Let's say, up, they're all forgiven. You can't do that. Why? Because God said, Adam and Eve, you eat from this. Death's going to enter into your ecosystem. No, death no longer has a sting. Death no longer has a victory. So, oh, Christ has flipped it. And so death now, though it is the result of sin, is now your friend. It's my friend. You see, the way I'm going to enter into heaven is through death. And the way Christ brought life to us is through death. And the meaning of death, Christ's death and the resurrection is what? The fulfillment of what the Father said, but a gift to you of what? Eternal life. 
But you have to die. That's the only way you get what? A plant is to put the seed into the ground and it dies and it springs forth life. And Paul says it's the same in the spiritual life. Christ died and he came to life out of that death. He was planted in the ground and he sprung forth out of that ground and gave you life and ripped the poison and the sting out of death. And when you get to heaven, your life is going to be made new. It's going to be changed. And there's three things that Paul talks about here in this text. He says in verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it's raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, it's been given a new power and it's sown a natural body and it's going to be raised a spiritual body. Imperishable, we have no idea. Well, we really do. You know what imperishable is. You go to the grocery store, you buy a Twinkie. That's imperishable. <laughs> they, they say a Twinkie has a shelf life of 75 years. I think they're underplaying it. I think it's actually probably 150 years before it even alters its state. It's imperishable, meaning it does not change. It does not decompose. It's not weakened. It it has no shelf life. It lasts forever. Paul's taking us up into heaven for a moment and he goes, imagine your body never, ever dying, decaying. You never have to take an ibuprofen. You never wake up in the morning and think, whoa, that hurts. You never have to go to the doctor and say, you need a new hip. You never have to go with your coach or your parents to the, to the surgeon and say, you know, we need to completely reconstruct your ACL. You're imperishable. You do not decay. He said, secondly, in this is your, your body gives way from weakness to strength or weakness to power. In what ways is your body weak? Well, it's vulnerable. You and I do not have the ability without clothing to go out into the elements of this world and survive. There are certain temperatures that you can't live. You have a weakness. We wouldn't call it this, but the reality is you can't go out here and run endlessly to the other end of the United States. You can't do that. You can't go without sleep. You can alter yourself, you can take all kinds of things, but at some point your body is going to give way and you got to go to bed because it's what? It's weak. But the scripture says that one day your body is going to have power and it's going to have endless power and you're not going to have to take anything like five-hour energy. You're not going to have to infuse something in. You're not going to have to drink a bunch of coffee to make it through the night to write a, uh, you know, a paper. Your body's going to have power. Why do you need that? Well, when you get to heaven, it's not going to be one just long worship service. Nothing against worship services and preachers. I mean, that would be silly for me to be against that kind of stuff. But the fact is, man, when I was a kid, they used to talk about, you know, the wedding feast of the lamb and worship in heaven. And I, I kind of quietly, as a kid, didn't want to ask this because I thought they would hate my guts. But I kind of quietly thought, man, I hope there's something more than just a church service. Because if that's all heaven is in, I, I, God, can I go help you start a new planet? 
I want something more. I do, and I hope you do too. I mean, I, for those of you who like to fish, I hope you get to fish. And for those of you who like to golf, you come, come golfing with me. I'm going to be a scratch golfer in heaven. In fact, my first day in heaven, I've asked the Lord for three holes in one. Just because I'm a Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I want them all. I want a hole in one on a par three, a par five, and a par ten. I don't know if they make those in heaven. But I'm going to have power and you're going to have power. Why? Because we're going to create in heaven and we're going to explore in heaven. I don't know that it's going to be like Star Trek. You know, a father, would you take me to another star? I'd like to go visit that. But I do know that when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, he wants you to explore it and enjoy it. It's going to be beautiful. And you're going to need endless power. Why? Because you're not going to sleep in heaven. You're not going to need it. That's going to be so cool. I think sleep is generally a waste of time. I don't like it. But the fact is in heaven, I'll never have to sleep. Why? Because I'll just continue to be generated with all this power. But not only that, he, he goes to this next one. And it's kind of an interesting phrase. He said, you were born a natural person, a natural body, and you will be raised a spiritual body. Well, think about it for a second. It, you, when you're born, you have a spirit. You have a soul. It's not like you're just a body. So Paul, what are you talking about? I wonder if what he's saying here in this text is you're born a natural person, meaning you're born without the spirit of God. You're born a sinner, if you will. You're sinful when you're born. And when you get to heaven, one of the things that's going to happen is that sinful body that you inherited, that disposition of rebellion is going to be completely taken away from you and you're going to have nothing but a pure heart and nothing but an active and a pure mind. You're going to have nothing. You're not going to have one ounce of temptation in you. There won't be any ability to be tempted because of the purity of your heart. Now, I don't know about you, but that's probably one of the most exciting things to me in the world is to get to heaven and to realize I'll never have a bad motive. I'll never say anything that I regret. I'll never lose my patience. I'll never have a moment where I have somebody that I think I really just don't want to spend eternity with you. I don't know about you, but the idea that everyone gets along and delights in each other and loves each other is really kind of an exciting thing for me. One of my favorite all-time individuals in the world is, is uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, when she was a teenager, Johnny, she was jumping into a lake, and she jumped into a lake, dove into it, and with her head hit a rock, and she was immediately a quadriplegic. Her entire adult life from those days as a teenager, every day of her life, when she gets up in the morning, she wakes up in the morning, somebody helps her out of bed, somebody bathes her, somebody dresses her. I mean, think about just the wrestle of modesty and the wrestle of needing somebody every day to dress you, somebody needed to help you eat, somebody that helps you go to bed. Every moment of every day, she's completely dependent upon other people. When I've heard her speak, read her stuff, because she has, she has some insights on suffering that they're just they're profound. 
But one time I watched her speak and she took a Q&A afterwards. And there was an individual who asked her the question, Johnny, when you get to heaven, what is the one thing that you most look forward to? Now, I answered that in my mind. I kind of like, I bet she's going to say. And, you know, I thought for sure she was going to say what I look forward to when I get to heaven is I'm going to take this wheelchair and I'm going to kick this thing to the side and I'm going to start dancing with Jesus. I thought that she would say something like that, but she didn't. She responds to that question. She said, when I get to heaven, you know what excites me the most? She said, I will not have one impure thought or motive in my mind. I will be perfect in my heart. To be honest with you, that shocked me. Because if every day when I wake up, I have to have somebody dress me and feed me and change tubes. And I don't do anything. I don't do anything without the help of somebody else. I think the idea of not having that would be my favorite thing about heaven. I often think about my daughter, Annie. I can't wait to see her in heaven. But I've said this before. I, I wonder, honestly, if when I get to heaven, I will discover that I changed more than her. I know her IQ is not the highest, 64. But her purity factor is beyond anything I've ever attained. And therefore, I've thought, you know what? When we get to heaven... Oh, I will delight having conversations with her when she can fully communicate everything that she wants. But I think what Paul is telling us is when you get to heaven, the thing that will be most delightful is that you will be a person of pure spirit and you will not have one ounce of hatred in your heart. So Paul, when do we get to go? I'm ready. He goes on and he says in verse 51, listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the flash and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Whoa, what's that one? Well, we're not so sure about the whole duration. There's some debate as to whether or not the church will go through the tribulation. Some of you hope and pray that you don't go through the tribulation. You're called pre-rapture folks. I hope you're right. And if we uh, get out of there, that's not the last trumpet. That's the rapture. That's when we get removed from this earth. And then we're up in heaven and this tribulation goes along for seven years. And at the end of the tribulation... Uh, this is the way I envision it. At the end of the tribulation, we're coming towards the end of the seven years. And Jesus looks over at the father and he goes, father, can I go? And he goes, not quite yet. We've got a few more days in this thing. And Jesus looks over and he says, is, is, are we ready to go? And finally the father says, son, go get him. And Jesus gets on this horse and man, he comes down and the archangel Michael gets the band going and the trumpet goes and it's the trumpet blow of God and the entire world hears this. I don't care where you're at. The tribulation is done and the trumpet call of God is sounded and Christ shows up and the Antichrist he's dealt with. And all of those who have rebelled against God they're dealt with. And it says in a twinkling of an eye a flash 
I don't know. Just stop for a moment and blink your eye. How long is that? Not long. That's how long it takes. In a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the dead are going to be raised. And that's when we will become imperishable. That's when we will get our new body. When you die today, if you were to die today, let's not do that. But if we were to have somebody die today, what happens? Well, we go to heaven. We get, we're in the presence of Christ. But you don't have your new body. You have a temporary, kind of like if you go to the DMV, you don't have your real license. It's temporary. You can drive, but it's a temporary. You're going to get something more permanent. When you get to heaven, you get a temporary body. I don't know what that looks like, but it's enough to hang out in heaven. And you're going to be there and you're going to be recognizable and people, you know, not going to mistake you for your neighbor. That'd be a bad thing. They'll know who you are. But it's not the imperishable. It's not the glorified. It's not the perfected body. But when the last trumpet blows, God says, I'm going to, and, and, and I don't know where I'm going to be, if I'm going to be heaven coming back down, or if I'm going to be on earth slugging out down here through the tribulation. I think I vote for that one. I kind of like a good fight, so I'm staying. And we're going to walk through that season. And when Christ shows up, I'm running to a graveyard. Because every one of those graveyards are going to erupt. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And they're going to receive in that moment in the twinkle of an eye. And so will I. And so will you. You're going to receive your, your glorified, perishable body. And Christ is going to gather his church. And the Father... And the spirit and the son are going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to be launched into this beautiful season together. That's not where Paul finishes. Because really that's not Paul's point. He said, I want you to imagine all of that for this reason. So I want you to know how to live on this earth. And he comes to the end and he gives them two things. He says, therefore, my dear friends, number one, stand firm. Number two, keep serving fully the work of God. Stand firm. Why? Let nothing move you, he says. The reality is there are going to be all kinds of things that try and move you. There will be. There will be people who try and shame you. They'll say things like, you know what? Only weak people believe in Christ and Jesus and this death and resurrection stuff. If you're that mentally weak and you have to believe in that, okay, but I don't need it. They'll try and shame you. Uh, They may even guilt you. They'll say something like, well, you know, if you're a Christian, you're not a very good one. I mean, you're kind of pathetic. You're a hypocrite. And so they may shame you. They may come at you and say, you know what? How can you, an intellectual person, believe in this mysterious stuff like the death and the resurrection of Christ? Do you actually think that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth? Science doesn't support that. What kind of intellectual person are you? Have you checked your brain at the door? Paul understands that there were people who came against him. 
He understands that as you live your life, there's going to be all kinds of people. And his point is, stand firm. Stay on what? The things that I've taught you. And there are three. Number one, dear friends, when Christ was hanging on the cross, do you realize that almost everything he said on that cross was prophesied that he was going to say it almost a thousand years or right at a thousand years prior to his ever being on the cross? Do you realize that the prophecies about Christ are at least 37 specific prophecies like where he was going to be born, the city he was going to be born, the virgin birth that he was going to be born, the name he was going to be given? Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I had a person a thousand years ago, a thousand years ago, and wrote it down, in 1962, Mark Hankey is going to be born. He's going to be born in Good Samaritan Hospital, and his mother's name is going to be Isla. And they wrote that down, and they could document it. I would say, let me tell you what, that is a supernatural prophecy. And that would be with three. But Paul says, my friends... The resurrection of Christ was prophesied up to a thousand years prior. And everything about Jesus' life was prophesied. If you want to have some confidence and you want to stand firm, then stand on the historical prophecies that were said about Christ. But not only that, Paul says, I want you to stand on the present reality that Christ's life and body was testified, witnessed by at 1.500 people who saw Jesus Christ walk out of the grave and touched him, had dinner with him, and witnessed his resurrected body. When people come against you, and they will, let nothing move you. When people come against you and they try to move you and when unanswered prayers cause doubt in you, stand firm. When people question your faith, stand firm. When they make fun of the Bible and say there's all kinds of religious literature, why do you trust the Bible? All of those things, when they come against you, Paul says you stand firm. Why? Because of the historical predictions and prophecies that were said about Christ. Because of the present reality of being witnessed by over 500 people. But third, Paul says in this letter, the transformation of people. When you look at the transformation of people, Paul says, can you explain that? Can you explain how through following this man, Jesus Christ, so many lives over the years, have been completely changed. Marriage has changed. There's a gentleman by the name of A.N. Wilson. He, uh, over the years, was considered kind of a famous atheist in Great Britain. He was raised in the church. He got to the point where like a lot of people just like fed up with the church, fed up with Christ, fed up with the whole thing and kind of declared himself an atheist. A few years ago, there was a change in his life. He went to church on a Palm Sunday. He wrote an article in the Daily Mail, which is the newspaper of the London Times. And this is what he said after he went to church on that Palm Sunday. He says, when I took part in the procession last Sunday and heard the gospel being chanted, I assented to it with complete simplicity. My own return to faith 
has surprised no one more than myself. Why did I return to it? Well, partially perhaps it was no more than the confidence that I've gained with age. Rather than being cowed by them, I relish the notion that by asserting a belief in the risen Christ, I'm defying all of the liberal, clever clogs on the block. But there is more to it than that, he goes on. My belief has come about in large measure because of the lives and the examples of people that I've known. Not the famous, not the saints, but friends, relations who have lived who have faced death and in the light of the resurrection story are in quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. D.L. Moody, famous evangelist, was preaching one day and an atheist came to him and was attacking him and accusing him of believing a fable. Moody challenged the atheist and said, I'd like to meet you back here at six o'clock tonight. And I want you to bring any and every person that your atheism has transformed. Moody challenged this atheist and said, if your atheism is so productive and so powerful and so significant, then I want you to meet me back here at six o'clock and I want you to bring every person that your atheism has made a difference in their life. And Moody said, I will bring all the people that I know that Christ has changed their life. Six o'clock came And Moody showed up with over 200 people. People whose marriages had been changed. Addicts who'd been delivered. Unethical businessmen who had turned their life around through the power of Christ. Strangely, the atheist did come. He brought no one. Because atheism is no hope. It's sheer destruction, secularism, stripped of morals, stripped of values. And the only thing that brings hope is the transformation. And Paul says, friends, when people come against you, and they will, you anchor yourself in these three things. There is a historical story and prediction of Christ that came true. Remarkably over 37 of them that were predicted over a thousand years before he lived. There were people who witnessed his resurrection. They witnessed his body. They touched his body. And we have 2,000 years of people whose lives have been changed. Don't give up on it. When you've spent a moment in heaven and you've seen the reality of the resurrection, then he says, you're going to know how to live on earth. And finally, he said, not only that, I want you to confidently serve the Lord. I want you to not give up and there will be days that you get tired. There will be days, some days where you just simply said, you know what, God, I've served enough. There will be days where he said, God, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired. I want to make it about me. I want people to serve me. I want my wife to serve me. God, I've, I'm done. I've, I've served. I've worked long enough. I, I've given everything that I've got. And there will come those days where Paul says, that's the day you need to remind yourself. Jesus never made it about him. He made it about you. 
And in that moment where you're tired and you want to quit, Paul says there's going to be a power. There's going to be a power that comes in you and in the midst of your weakness, you're going to discover that Christ is strong. It's a picture of what heaven's going to be like because when you get to heaven, your weaknesses is going to be completely displaced. Until then, Paul says, and he's the one who wrote, in my weakness, I am discovering that God is strong. Don't quit serving. Don't give up. Because when you get to heaven, you're going to discover that everything you gave was worth it. And when your pride gets pricked, and you want to be noticed for something, Paul reminds him, don't don't go down that path. Paul's the one who said, "I, I want you to have the attitude of Christ, who though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself. He gave himself up. He he emptied himself and took on the form of a man and became obedient even unto death. Paul says, that's our model. And don't think for a moment when you get to heaven, you're going to think, oh, I wish I wouldn't have served so much. No, when you get to heaven and you, you have received that imperishable body. And when you get to heaven, you receive that transformed and glorious and holy body. And when you get to heaven, you have this powerful body. You're never going to once go, oh God, I, I, I wish I didn't serve so much on earth. Confidently serve the Lord. Why? He ends with this. I want you to know something. Your labor in the Lord is never going to be in vain. In other words, when you get to heaven, there's going to be dividends. There's going to be a payout. God is never going to be a debtor to anyone. And so he says to you today, if you spend just a moment in heaven, if you just imagine it, Most of us are not going to experience what that little girl did when she went down that tree. And most of us are not going to experience what Lazarus did. But all of us, Paul says, can imagine what's it going to be like in heaven. And if that happens, and it will, then you know how to live on earth. For 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, People have been standing behind the pulpit saying, Christ is risen. And the congregation responds, he's risen indeed. To my knowledge, there's never been a pastor who has stood behind the pulpit and said, the stock market is risen. It is risen indeed. I've never heard of a pastor. Never. Not even a liberal one. Stand up and say, The dollar is risen. It's risen indeed. And never once have I ever had anyone say, my 401k is risen. The reality is it hasn't. It's in half. There's a reason why they never say that. And it's not because they would be laughed out of the park. It's not because they would be silly. It's because they know better. They know that none of those have hope. They come and they go, they ebb and they flow. And the only thing that will give you any confidence at all and change the way you live on earth, change your perspective, change your value system 
If you go back and watch that little movie, Miracles from Heaven, this little girl who had some kind of supernatural encounter with God, she comes back and she sees life differently. She affects her parents' faith. She affects a whole church's faith. I would imagine, dear friends, that when Lazarus was around after the resurrection, he was fun to be with because he saw life differently. Because you see, when you've spent a moment in heaven, you'll know how to live on earth.